hi, my name is Bay Logan, and welcome to the DVD and Blu-ray release of the Shaw Brothers classic, The Dragon Missile. And you should all be standing up and saluting for the Shaw logo and Shaw scope, which also opened the film Kill Bill by Quentin Tarantino. He's the late, great Lolier, Lolit, star of King Boxer. He's on location here in Saigon in the New Territories of Hong Kong. And there's the eponymous Dragon Missile weapon about to take off, cut from the location to the studio interior. And you see these shots of it flying around and sparking. It's basically a kung fu boomerang. Shaw Brothers' hardworking VFX department added all the sparks. And then it comes back onto the Saigong location. Here's the name of the movie. Fei Long Zhang, Flying Dragon Chop. And you'll note coming up, the producer credit for the movie isn't for Run Run Shaw, the more famous of the Shaw Brothers, but Run Mei, who was the third of six sons of the Shanghainese textile merchant Shaw Yushun, who next to Run Run, uh, Run Mei is the most prominent of the Shaw Brothers. This movie made in 1976, so that's three years after Bruce Lee died. And we have Bruce's kind of rival and, co and, and, and uh, his rival, which was Lolit, and his co-star, uh, Lao Wing, Tony Liu, both in this movie written by the incredibly prolific uh, Yi Kuang, Ai Hong, sci-fi author, columnist, TV host, action directed by the former partner of Lao Gaoleng, uh, Tong Gai, and by the younger, younger brother of director and action director Yin Wapeng, Yun Cheng Yan. And uh, so this is like evidence that Shaw's really had set the bar. This is not by any means a famed movie, a high-profile film, but you see every aspect of the movie shot to the Shaw Brothers, the demanding standards set by Run Run Shaw for all his films. And uh, when these films finally did come out on DVD in Hong Kong, it was amazing to see the sheer depth of quality of the studio. And the director, Ho Meng Hua, probably better known for Mighty Peking Man, the Hong Kong version of King Kong. And here we are again cutting back and forth between location and studio, cutting to these weapons, spinning on wires, and the Chinese text comes up at the bottom of the frame to introduce every major act and role, as was, this, the, uh, as was the system back in those days. Magnificent interior set at the Clearwater Bay studios of Shaw Brothers, the Imperial Palace. And we open on chaos as this hot water is delivered, and we're gonna meet, uh, I guess, the villain of the, the piece, who is Lord Jin, played by the wonderful Ku Feng, Guk Feng, who was this incredibly prolific and uh, eclectic character player. We're seeing his back there with this horrible wound. And there he is. Ku Feng, Guk Feng, began his career as a carnival singer. And that's his wife, uh, played by his character wife, played by Lai Man. Pretty much played everybody's mother from the mid-60s onwards. Her last film was Samuel Hung's directing debut, Iron Fisted Monk. And uh, you have uh, Guk Feng, as I mentioned before, a singer, in uh, carnivals in Beijing, moved to Hong Kong and became this incredibly prolific and useful. He's really the go-to guy for all manner of roles at Shaw Brothers and probably the finest classical actor that they had for most of the glory years of that studio. Look at the color, detail of the sets. These movies, they were making maybe eight movies at a time on the vast expanse of sets and locations they had off Clearwater Bay. And it was definitely the glory days of Hong Kong filmmaking, and we won't see it's like in this city again, though it's possible the Chinese industry will rise up to meet the challenge. Loli, Lolie, as Sima Jun, wearing white, traditionally the Chinese color of death. Lo was already a Shaw Brothers veteran at this point. He'd started work, working at the studio in 1964, so he'd been there for 12 years by the time he made this movie. Played the villain in The Chinese Boxer, this really underrated 1970 film, 1970 
film shot in 1970, starring and directed by Jimmy Wong Yu, the one-armed boxer. And two years later, Lawley almost accidentally starred in the film that broke Chop Socky as a genre in America, King Boxer, a.k.a. Five Fingers of Death, which was made by the Korean director Cheng Chang-ho. And Shaw's were kind of surprised, and they never really capitalized on him as a lone martial arts hero. Uh, middle of the frame here is Man Man, supporting player exclusively at uh, Shaw's. Uh, and as I mentioned before, um, this is Got Le Yan, Hao Li Jian, forever famed as Bruce Lee's retainer in Enter the Dragon. He started at Shaw Brothers in a film, the film A Mellow Spring back in 1957 before even I was born. And David Chang, Kung Dai Wai, later a Kung Fu star at Shaw's, he was a child actor in that film Mellow Spring. And his wife, you saw in the background, is played by Yeung Gay, a supporting player. Again, exclusive to Shaw Brothers. And it's interesting, you know, back in these days, um, the studio made so many movies that they could have character actors on contract who only really ever worked at the studio. Though some later did go and work over at Golden Harvest. Notice the servant shaking out his sleeve and getting to one knee. That's kind of a traditional gesture. And normally with, a, when the, with the emperor, it's like mansoi, mansoi, man, mansoi, basically meaning the emperor would live for thousands and thousands of years. Guy at the right, the guard at the right of frame there, Fung Yin Man, probably the most prolific supporting player in Chinese film history. So the palace has its own laws, and uh, so the doctor doesn't want to help. So Got Lian, as I mentioned, started his career at Shaw Brothers in '57, and is in some of the key films of the genre, including uh, Come Drink with Me, Dai Joy Hap, and One Armed Swordsman, Duk Beido. And in the 70s, he went back and forward between Shaw Brothers Studio and Golden Harvest. And you can see him in such key films as Hapkido, Iron Fisted Monk. And the same year he was um, Bruce Lee's character's retainer in Enter the Dragon, he had a very good role in King Hu's The Fate of Lee Khan, which King Hu had made for Golden Harvest after leaving Shaw Brothers. And uh, great character player, proficient in English, which is how he got the role in Enter the Dragon, which is quite unusual for the older Chinese character players. So here we see the Chinese version of the Hippocratic Oath at work. He's left in a rage and then kind of has to go back because he feels that he has responsibility as a doctor to try to heal uh, his patients. So it comes back in again. And he, again, incredibly prolific, Got Le Yan. But he was kind of born old. When you see him in his early film roles, he already looks middle-aged. And then he basically aged up until you see him, one of his last roles was in Tower of Death, when they reused some deleted footage from Enter the Dragon with him in 1973, and then had footage of him shot in 1981 and cut it together, and that was uh, towards the end of his life. So the boil created here, this injury, this wound by the Shaw Brothers special effects makeup, basically it's hobby painting products repurposed for the scene. I got Leanne uh, in the center of the frame here. One of his last roles was in arguably the greatest traditional kung fu movie of all time, Lao Garlung's 36th Chamber of Shaolin. And in that film, he plays the abbot in charge of the highest chamber, and he's the one that knocks Gordon Liu out of the room with his qigong, with his heigong. So you see in this movie, uh, Ho Menghua, very nice framing of shots. And as I say, this was basic, the, the basic standard was set by Shaw Brothers at the script, the production values, the sets, the cinematography, the action, everything in the costumes, everything had to be at a certain level and there's a certain house style. Look at this nice mise-en-scene, to use a kind of uh, a, a phrase you only ever hear in film school. The prince really cold-blooded. Um, Ku Feng, Guk Feng, at the right of the frame here is the prince, 
really extraordinary range as an actor. Um, and he played pretty much, uh, you know, every, every kind of role that you can imagine from a Thai boxer to the patriarch of a, of a killer clan within the space of about 10 years. So Lolit's character, I mean, is pretty much a one-man version of the Flying Guillotines, which was another, there was Flying Guillotine Part 1 and Part 2 about these flying devices used to, by, by the Emperor's men to kill people. And uh, so you kind of, to, to basically cut their heads off. And there was two movies devoted to that. And in this film, you get another version of the weapon that was more of like a beekeeper's helmet that dropped over somebody's head and, you know, kind of decapitated them. And this is more of a flying, uh, a flying uh, boomerang that whistles through the air and has the same effect. So um, I always think that with these films, it's not so much, and there's a famous interview at Run Run Shaw saying this, it's like the tales themselves, the stories themselves are not, necessarily hugely original but the way in which they you tell it really defines you know how it's going to be received and whether it's going to be a classic or not and there's definitely some lost classics and this is perhaps one of them in the Shaw Brothers library and it's great that thanks to DVD and Blu-ray these films are finally seeing the light of day uh, so Lolit uh, Chinese of Indonesian extraction uh, and his wife was the elder sister of the director Stanley Tong, which is why you often see uh, Stanley Tong who directed Police Story Supercop, which is why you often see him in the films of uh, Stanley Tong. And I mentioned uh, Flying Guillotines. This set was used in the film Flying Guillotines and you see this pink wall and then Razor Mountain in the background, also the famous pagoda if you go back and look which I think inspired Bruce Lee for Game of Death. And now we have the spinning, he throws the spinning sparking version is in the studio, and quick cut between Gottlieb and reaction, and then we're gonna see the head pulled off the dummy on a wire, and then back across the studio backdrop and back in on the, on the location or on the stage into Lolly's hand, and then you have a stuntman with the legs moving around. Back on the set, carrying the head in a red sack. I mean, another, drink, another drinking game you can have in this movie is every time somebody loses their head, you uh, take a shot of Jack Daniels. Another bad. Nice camera dolly behind the wall into the studio. That kind of movement was only possible at Shaw Brothers. They're very smart, actually, given the limitations technically of what you could do in these times. That's actually got Leanne's head with his body below the frame, and then in a moment you actually have a dummy head. Uh, and it's... Uh, you, notice, you notice, I think, a lot of this stuff looks as good as the stuff today that they do with CGI, and I'll point that out a bit later. There's a few other scenes that I think that's true of. And again, beautiful wide shot showing the detail of the workmanship on a Shaw Brothers movie. Typical sneaky courtier, by the way, in the background. You always get this guy who's going to, uh, in, in the effort to help the Lord to cause chaos for the other characters in the movie. Uh, so Sima Jun being sent on this mission of life or death, and basically it's life for the Lord and it's death for him if he should fail. And always in these films, you have these machinations within the car. This is hugely popular even to this day. The idea that you have an imperial palace with, king, with emperor, the emperor and the princes and the princesses and the machinations that go on between them and the courtiers and the eunuchs. Um, 
there's so many books, Dream of Red Chamber and the classics of Chinese literature, which draw on that, and it's something that you see in the films as well. And of course, they all had these wonderful costumes and locations and settings, which would be reused from film to film to film. I guess like in Hollywood in the days when they made westerns, they had all the elements they would need to make a western, and then they would just move the characters back and forward and hire different actors. Here's Fan Moisan, my mentor and uh, good friend, uncle, Fan Moisan, Fan, Fan Meisheng. Here's Gong Yeung, who played Wong Keying in Challenge of the, of the Masters. And uh, this fellow with the pipe, uh, Wang Han Chen, forever immortalized the tea house owner in Jackie Chan's Drunken Master. Here's uh, Terry Lau, Lau Wai Yu, uh, erotic film actress as the Iron Finger Witch Sasa. And, uh, Choi Su Kang, Norman Choi. Here, very young, they actually aged him up for the part. This is his first major role. He finally gets a character name, Fang Song, and then Go Hong. Same deal. One of the first times he gets a real character name, Niu Jin Sing. And you see the white writing at the bottom of the frame introducing each character, which, given the number of characters coming and going in Shaw Brothers movies, not a bad idea. Another amazing set, by the way. Just look at the detail and the way the camera can follow along as the courtier comes in. So they just have the Sinister Six on standby in case they need some dirty deeds done dirt cheap. And Shaw Brothers have this amazing roster of character players on standby. And I was curious about how they coordinate, coordinated everybody in the days before texting and phone pages. And Fan Moisan, uh, that guy on the right there, he told me that the assistant directors for the films would ring everyone's home number the night before shooting and to tell them where to show up for shooting the next day. And then you'd normally get a minibus from wherever you lived in Hong Kong, which is not that big of a place, to be honest, to the Shaw Brothers studio in Clearwater Bay, breakfast in the canteen, off to hair and makeup. Those were the days. And then you get the script pages on the set. And I asked him, but what about remembering all the lines? Because that's always my bane. I have a hard time remembering new dialogue. I can remember pages of Shakespeare, but I can't remember the new stuff. And he says it didn't matter because they never recorded with sound. So if you blew the line, as long as the performance was there, they kept going. So you'd get the script pages and a general idea from the, the assistant director of what was needed. And then the director would come in and you'd be off and shooting. So that was the life of a support player of um, Shaw Brothers era, and here we have six, well, seven of them in this room. Uh, and uh, this is interesting. This is like a pre-Lady -Wol Wolverine pr long before they had a movie Wolverine, maybe before they even had a Wolverine in the comic books, I think, um, pre-CGI. And you've noticed this. First, you have the claws coming out of a fake hand. Then they're attached to Terry Lau's real hand. Then we cut to the knives already embedded in the wood. And that's as good as anything you'd see with CGI. This is the stable set and Lolit with his horse. Each actor was usually assigned his own horse for the duration of his time working at Shaw Brothers because you never would think about it, but the horse had to be really familiar with the actor and vice versa. So actors had different levels of um, horsemanship, but they would be assigned a horse. So the horse that you see here with Lolit is the same horse that he would ride in every one of his movies as far as possible. And of course they had uh, special horse trainers on hand. And when you join the Shaw Brothers acting, training program you learn how to ride a horse not just up and down the paddock the way i might but how you could ride it in terms of doing action sequences so uh this these are the horses from the stable who were kept out in the new territories and brought in as needed for these scenes for these movies 
Um, and Lawley, by this point, well accustomed to doing sword play. Now, a wonderful shot, doubles on the horse, his thundering past the studio. You see the flag basket that David Chang jumps up in Blood Brothers, and it was Razor Hill, Che Kusan in the background. This red clay uh, expanse in the lagoon is in Sha Tin. And uh, again, you get, for the wider shot, the doubles riding along uh, against the wonderful expanse of the countryside. And this set built above Clearwater Bay, Cheng Wan. Beautiful uh, to see down to the sea and it's so clear. This reverse shot is in Saigong because the reverse, I think, had like cables in it or something. So you reverse, you look up at Saigong and you look down, you're at Clearwater Bay just around from where the Shaw Brothers studios were located. They're still located, they haven't been knocked down yet, though they've moved to another kind of big white elephant of a place in Zhangguano. But I believe the uh, for the time being, the classic studios where this film was made is saved from demolition. Herbalist Tan, played by the great Yeung Chi Ying, a villain of the one-armed swordsman, Duk Bei Do, and he plays the Kung Fu master in Choi Yun's The Killer, a very underrated martial arts film. And this interior is built on location. Now, the fellow on the, who bowed his head and leaving there is actually Sun... Uh, his name is uh, San Mo. The character name is San Mo. He's played by Meng Yun Man, Yun Man, who's perhaps the least well-known of the Chutsu folk. The Seven Little Fortunes, which included Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, and Yun Biu. So I'll uh, talk some more about him a bit later when he comes back in. But he is like a, uh, was a child actor in Shaw Brothers films like Lady of Steel with Cheng Pei Pei. And uh, worked with her again on Kung Fu Girl at Golden Harvest. So I'm mentioning him because he's really in the background here, but he had grown up training alongside Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, Yun Biu, Yun Kuei, Yun Kuei and Yun Wah, who were both on the, working on this movie as well. So uh, the interior is built on location, and you have a, a ginseng root, and of course Fan Mo San's character budding in to ruin everything. Now, Yung Chi Ying was not a martial artist, but he could learn choreography. So the set is built actually outdoors rather than constructing the interior of the studio so that you would allow for some action stunts when he declines to give them the ginseng root. I guess people have seen ginseng, they're familiar with it, but it's a very rare medicinal root often found in Korea and other uh, Asian countries. Very valuable. So as you see, this is um, uh, Yeung Chi Hing, choreographed here by Tong Gai and uh, Yun Chun Yan. And by building outside, they can do these kind of stunts where you have people flying through the windows and whatever. But it's cool. And you save a bit on lighting as well because you can have the sunlight coming in through the windows. And it makes you realize how studio-bound the late-era Cheng Chi or Chang Chair movies were when you actually see how they make use of Hong Kong locations. Of course, those days, the New Territories, there were not as many things in the way. So uh, this is like a uh, classic thing that normally in these old films in the Wuxia, healers were also martial art masters. I mean, it might seem a bit strange today if you had a, uh, a doctor in a hospital suddenly cutting loose with Kung Fu, but this is something that was very um, com in the literature of this period. And that distinctive red, uh, you're going to see this color pop a few times, the red horse blanket there on Lolit's uh, mount. And because he's got the white costume as well, it's great to make a character as formidable as that. And there again, you see Men, Meng Yun Man. By the way, the Yun taken from the teacher, Yu Jim Yun, of all the Seven Little Fortunes. Bam, again, the same thing. Shaw Brothers zoom on him, throw the rubber prop onto Yong Chi Hing's neck, and then the head pops off. He needed a spring for a spine for that to happen, but it's only a movie. 
and then uh, the headless dummy falls. And as they ride back, the famous Shaw Brothers wooden bridge in the background, which is a bit, I don't think that's really meant to be there, but that's what was there in the background of the studio because they're meant to be more out in the open country. So, uh, and I mentioned again, uh, Yun Man, who's coming out here. He finally became a Kung Fu star himself later in Coward Bastard and The Fighting Fool, but he never made it. And with film titles like Coward Bastard and Fighting Fool, it's hardly a surprise. So they're leaving, Go Hong leaving no witnesses, which is really cold. And this pays off later that he steals the snuff bottle. That's a bottle that would be carrying snuff, a kind of tobacco that you sniff. So these guys mounting up and making their escape from the, uh, not escape really, they've just committed these awful deeds and riding back to continue their mission. And then you have Nancy Yen, Yen Nancy, who's an actress from Taiwan. This is one of the quite few Hong Kong productions she was in. She worked more in Taiwan, but there was a trend at that time to find actors and actresses from Taiwan. So um, it's interesting. Her name is kind of phonetic. She was Yen Nancy, and her English name is Nancy Yen. Her basic martial arts skills. So, yeah, this is a quick beat here for Yun Man, Meng Yun Man. I mean, the Chutsu Fook were these uh, seven youngsters, and they worked in movies. The first film roles of Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung were as the Seven Little Fortunes, working in films as kids. Now we're back in Sai Kung, and uh, the the gang kind of sitting there and plotting and talking about their, uh, I guess, the next beat, what they're going to do. Back in the days, it makes you really appreciate how Hong Kong has been built up in the years since the 70s. Quite right, too. He really, I'm going to say he deserves that. And here's uh, Tony Liu, Lao Wing, familiar face for fans of Bruce Lee because um, he's in Big Boss and Fist of Fury and uh, Enter the Dragon. After Bruce Lee's death, he's, he made a reverse. Most people had come from Shaw Brothers to Golden Harvest. He went back from Golden Harvest Studios to Shaw Brothers, and he became a favorite of Mona Fong, who was the studio chief at that time. And she uh, just, actually, Mona Fong just died the other day as I sit and record this. But she was Run Run Shaw's mistress, later his wife, and a double now for the uh, jump down, and then reverse action, a stuntman jumped down, and then they played the film back so he could come back up into the tree. And you get this, uh, all this miles of unspoiled Hong Kong countryside. The interiors, of course, these trees are inside the studio. And uh, this figure disappears, all, in the cu all done in the cutting. Very youthful look to Tony Liu. He still looks very good, by the way, today. He's still in the industry, and I see him on occasion either here in Hong Kong or in China. So there's the way in which the uh, bag, is, the leather bag, has been ripped open gives him, and the way that the guy jumped down gives him a clue as to who the guy might be. Apparently, they didn't see his face as he came leaping down. Bit of a coincidence. He should actually be just there when they, they're plotting the next step. But uh, the double riding away for Lolly, they would do a lot of riding stuff, what we'd call today second unit. And there he is riding up in Saigong and uh, with the dragon missile on his back and the, his empty bag. And then he looks to, he's on an exterior location in Saigong. And you can tell he's familiar with the horse when he cooks it away like that. And then we're looking at the studio interior at Shaw Brothers. And this set with the working water wheel reused for many other Shaw Brothers period films. This is studio, and then when we go inside, it's also studio. And so you're basically cutting back and forth. It kind of works pretty well. The big thing that changes with these is the lighting, because when you exterior, when you have that beautiful sunshine outdoors and you come in, you get kind of a fl more flat look. This is a very Thai-looking Buddha, by the way. This is not 
the Buddha, this is a little anachronistic, you wouldn't have had a Buddha like that, I don't think, in the China of this era. It would have, this is the more of a Thai Buddha, I think a prop used for one of the many uh, Shaw Brothers movies set in Thailand or dealing with Thai themes. But it doesn't matter, just a you know, little point if you know about Buddhist uh, iconography. And here's Tony Liu, I mentioned before, made his debut in The Big Boss, uh, Tan San Dai Hing, which of course is the film that made Bruce Lee a star everywhere. And Bruce, uh, he, that broke Bruce Lee in America. Lolit had starred in King Boxer, Tin Ha Kun, which was released as Five Fingers of Death. And that broke the Kung Fu genre in America. So you're looking at these two guys face to face, who both of them had the biggest hit movies. They were in the biggest hit movies of that early era of 1971, when these this genre first came to America. And here's Aoyang Shafei, pro pro prolific character actress, started her career in China in the 1940s. She worked until the 1990s. She only died seven years ago, as I write this, in 2010. And I'll always remember her as the mother in Jackie Chan's Dragon Fist, which is one of those Taiwanese movies that he made for Lawway. Um, and it was right after everybody, including me, had just discovered who Jackie Chan was. And that was my favorite of the films of that era, because it's not a comedy, it's played pretty straight. And we watched that a lot in England, and I always remember her performance in that movie as, I think she's Jackie Chan's adoptive mother. But anyway, she's a mother figure. The old blind relative is kind of a trope from these films. I seem to remember there was a character, similar character in Wong Yu's The Invincible Sword, and then uh, Yun, uh, Simon Yun, uh, uh, Yun Xiaotian played the same role. Uh, Yun Xiutian played a very similar role in Blind Fist of Bruce, one of the Bruce Lee-alike films. And so um, it's just, uh, and here we have the next trope, which is something even Bruce Lee was playing with, with his silent flute script, which is to have a blind martial arts master, because later we find that uh, Aoyang Xiaofei's character also is very good at martial arts. So this film played from the 24th of April 1976 in Hong Kong theaters. It was not hugely well received. Again, look at the nice wide shot there to show the detail of the set and the juxtaposition of the two characters. This movie unusually uh, never released in US theaters, though dubbed versions of it uh, did play on TV and still play on TV now. So Tony Liu, after uh, Bruce Lee's death, there was this aim, I think, by Golden Harvest to try to find somebody to replace Bruce Lee, which was evidently impossible. But on that track, they wanted they cast Tony Liu, Lao Wing, in a movie called The Manchu Boxer, which was shot primarily in Korea, which was not a hit. And so he worked in various other Golden Harvest movies, but then after his contract expired, moved to Shaw Brothers, and then he had his greatest success, interestingly, not with full-on martial arts action films, but with these historical comedies, Emperor Qin Lung, which was about a real, based on a real historical character, an emperor who decided to explore China undercover as a commoner, and much comic, comedic happenings ensued. Those, those films were really popular with local audiences. My favorite of Tony Liu's films is another relatively obscure one called Lady Assassin, which was actually the, the, the script for that and the story for that was developed for Bruce Lee by Shaw Brothers before Bruce Lee died. So it has kind of a little footnote in the Bruce Lee story and it's interesting to watch because you see Tony Liu uh, as a more mature player um, in that movie. That was in the early 80s that they made Lady Assassin. So he bids farewell to the house that is mounting the horse in Saigon. And so he was very popular at 
Shaw Brothers, Tony Liu, as among the directors, among the other actors. A very low profile character, easygoing, and I think he still is today. I've, I, as I say, I interviewed him for a couple of documentaries and met him en passant in Shanghai and elsewhere. During the making of Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon, as well as playing a role, he was actually assigned the job of training Bruce Lee's American co-star, John Saxon. So he would take him to the park, do Tai Chi, they would do karate together, because that's the basic style of uh, Tony Liu, and also go to the gym. Uh, and that was part of his responsibility. He actually speaks pretty good English, which was important because Saxon didn't speak any Chinese. By the way, uh, I mean, it's great that you have a weapon of choice. When you're riding a horse, the last thing I want to carry is the wooden pole, but that's just me. That's him riding off in Saigon, and then we're pulling back and seeing this amazing set. And the action set piece that follows, which is choreographed by Yung Chen Yan, uh, Yun Ping's younger brother, really makes the most of it. And uh, as I mentioned a few times with this era of films, it's interesting the way the cameras now were light enough that you could actually have quite smooth handheld movements like this one, which were not possible previously because the cameras were so heavy. So the old lady here, she's not talking to herself like a mad person. She's actually chanting. I mean, if you're Catholic, it's the equivalent of saying the rosary, but uh, she's a Buddhist, so she's chanting. And uh, you have kind of uh, the idea. I don't, I mean, I, I get why you want to have this little beat. Given the character played, uh, character played by Lolit, uh, Sima Jun, he's obviously such a, a cold-blooded guy. He might as well just walk in, grab what he wants and leave. Why does he have to sneak in? Other than, I suppose we're saying he knows that she actually has some martial arts skill. She has some mogong, so he needs to be careful. Double from the back, uh, and then she has to pull off the action when she's facing the camera. I love this little beat here, it's kind of the Zatoichi, Shintaro Katsu moment, the way she comes out here. Nice staging, as I say, by Yimo. and this is a reverse action. The guy flipped off the roof and they run the film back. Uh, and. Tong Gai, who'd worked with Lao Ga Leng, and Yun Chun Yan, who's kind of underrated as a choreographer next to his brother. He did Daredevil and Charlie's Angels as well. But nice uh, kind of like use, as I say, use of the set, use of the props. And also you have to bear in mind that this, uh, the, the actress here is not a trained martial artist, so you're working around that with doubles and seeing how much she can do. I say that, but most of the actors working at Shaw's had at least the basic so that they could be convincing if they were spinning a weapon or doing basic martial art techniques. I don't care what you try. So um, here we have again the use of the eponymous weapon, a bit of slow motion on him there, and uh, the hard-working VFX department to give the uh, sparks caused by the electric charge igniting gunpowder. I thought this old lady was really cool. I'm ashamed. It's, a, it's a sad that they had to kill the character off. So the prop's going to pass. The actress head flies off the dummy. And then we get the Shaw Brothers' blood on the ground and the stuntman rolling away and uh, basically the headless body, the legs moving. And so after all of that, he's coming in thinking, okay, now I'm going to get the, uh, he's going to get the ginseng. But instead, it's just some jade. Damn, old jade. So uh, you get some kind of like, uh, it's some groovy music coming in. Frankie Chan, Chan Fanke, who later played the bad guy in, uh, well, the, the antagonist, let's say, in Prodigal Son by Gajai, is the music composer slash acquirer. In those days, they didn't always compose, a, seldom composed an original score. They would just use library music. But he put in a kind of a bit of, a, a bit of funk here. I guess the scene perhaps needs a little bit of a lift because it's just uh, lolly searching. But 
I noticed that when I listened, watched to and watched the film and listened to the score that Frankie had put this kind of beat in there. He was a very inventive and interesting guy, and typical of people in Hong Kong who are have this kind of like eclectic background. He's an actor, director, producer, kung fu expert, and uh, expert on kung fu at least. So here we have uh, the, the, the daughter of the healer leaving home, looking for vengeance. And you notice the color coding here, both she and Tony Liu's character in these matching blue outfits. So you can tell the good guys from the bad guys, and you see a quick shot there. The background is the, that kind of castle as part of the studio back lot. I don't know that really fits in the story of this movie, but that was what was there. And, you know, they weren't, no one could, in these days, nobody could paint it out in post-production. So... Um, they're riding out. When they ride out into this magnificent open country, we're in Fanling. The close-ups of them riding on, these are doubles on the horses. This is actually them on a little cart with the camera tilted up, so it seems like they're on a horse. It doesn't really feel that convincing, does it? But I guess that's what they had to do. Look at this gorgeous location, Scott. Uh, shot. Double there for Lolit riding along. And uh, you kind of like, uh, you have this beautiful unspoiled Hong Kong countryside and this would be out when they moved away from the studio you'd head inland and find without having to take the crew too far away the best expanses you could and of course when you see a lot of Shaw Brothers films as I have you start seeing these sets and locations again and again but still very nice warm familiarity to them notice that she's carrying these short blades which are the Wing Chun Bat Jam Do or the Hong Kian Wu Dip Do and uh, double there for the jump down, double there for the run away. And then he's actually on the in the studio there when we looked up, and then we're back in Sai Kung for him riding along after they parted company. So he's coming from Sai Kung off the horse, the horse moves away, and then he's back on the studio set at Shaw Brothers, where, of course, he's going to find his mother. Now, Tony Liu had an interesting experience. Uh, not wasn't all plain sailing for him at Shaw Brothers. Very unusually, he was replaced by the director... Choyun after one day of filming on the movie Killer Clans, which was one of Choyun's very successful adaptations of the novels of Gulong. And he was, uh, Lao Wing was replaced by Chung Hua. And no one really knows why. I guess they'd cast him as can happen. Um, and Choyun looked at the rushes, or Run Run Shaw looked at the rushes and decided it wasn't right. Grave says Titmo Wong Tin, the Iron Mother's Grave. Titmo Wong Tin. This is out in Sai Kong. It looks like he has a slinky on either arm, if anybody remembers a slinky. But anyway, so just finishing the story about Killer Clans, later somebody said to La Wing, you know, how do you feel about it? He says it didn't bear any grudge, but didn't really understand why he had to be replaced. Neither do I. Double there, riding along through the Badlands, and here we are in the inn, which is an interior at a studio. All the inns set descend from the one used in King Hu's classic Come Drink With Me, Dai Joy Hap. And then we have the thunderstorm, which is like sympathetic nature, Shakespearean sympathetic nature. And this is very much in the kind of that mise-en-scene there of setting up the geographic positions of everybody in the inn is very King Who in its style. Everybody, you can't underestimate his influence. And now the arrival of uh, Lolit's character, Sima Jun, there's a double jumping off the horse there. It comes in and then you st see him start to use these tactics to divide and conquer. And he really was an interesting anti-heroic figure because on one level, he's the guy in the film who gets the mission uh, to, on behalf of the prince. And he's kind of the character that we're following. 
because the other people come in later in the play. But he's very cold-blooded, and he, I guess, over time becomes the bad guy. Stock footage there, obviously, of the lightning. And the gold characters on the left there, uh, Hakshang, traveling merchant, meaning that traveling people traveling. Hakshang, traveling through the region, we welcome to stay at this inn. They can't ride through the rain. What a bunch of wimps. I would put on, like, a, you know, waterproof gear and head out, like, John Wayne and the searches, but anyway. The waiter here, Sai Gua Pao, who played Aso in the old black and white Wong Fei Hong films. He's called, Sai Gua Pao is actually a nickname. His real name is Lam Shugan, but he was called Sai Gua Pao, meaning watermelon scraper because of his protruding teeth. And that smile, by the way, just now reminds me of, this reminds me of the real Lolly, who was a dear, sweet man. He always wore white or light blue shirts, dark pants and leather shoes when he wasn't filming. Great mise-en-scene, again, having that wagon wheel in the foreground. These little touches, and you see the, uh, the, the lightning again. Uh, director Ho Menghua is very underrated, in my view. He's probably best known for directing Flying Guillotine, of which this is a descendant, in a way, and also Mighty Peking Man, which was the Hong Kong King Kong. I like some of his, for me, I like some of his swordplay martial art films, more like Lady Hermit with the great Cheng Pei Pei, and Master of Kung Fu, which was a Wong Fei Hong film starring Ku Feng, the bad guy of this film as the legendary martial arts master my great 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 grandmaster Wong Fei Hong so Fan Moi San who you see with the red headband here he dubbed characters in the Bruce Lee films into Mandarin which is why he was close with uh, Bruce Lee self-admittedly he was a big time triad boss related to the cops and the gangs he has an interesting story actually about how Bruce Lee died and also later he had to help broker peace between Lo Wei and Jackie Chan over their contract dispute Look at Lolit, Lolier, Lolit. Still quite a strapping figure at this stage. He was one of the few rival kung fu stars that Bruce Lee liked and respected. Bruce Lee uh, hated uh, Wong Yu for sure, uh, but Lolit had joined the Shaw Brothers training program after seeing an ad in the newspaper, and he just saw it as a chance to make a living. He didn't have any big desire to be an artist, you know, or a creative individual. And the Fellow coming in to see him, uh, Wang Hanchen, Wang Hamchan, uh, Taiwanese character actor. He'd actually, that's him on the left of frame, he had appeared in Escorts Over the Tiger Hills, one of the few martial arts films made by the rival Cathay studio. That was the rival to Shaw Brothers, which soon fell away after the death of its founder. Uh, and Shaw Brothers emerged dominant, but Escorts Over the Tiger Hills was one of their few martial arts films. Like many Taiwanese actors, uh, Wang Hanchen started working at Shaw Brothers in the early 70s. You may have seen him in 36th Chamber of Shaolin, where he's the master of the leg chamber. And by the time uh, Lao Galeng, the director of 36th Chamber of Shaolin, made disciples of Shaolin Temper, Temple, he had promoted uh, Wang Hanchen to be the abbot. So he's the abbot of Shaolin Temple in Disciples of Shaolin Temple. But in my heart, he's always the innkeeper from uh, Jackie Chan's Drunken Master, because that's the movie that I watched like on repeat during some of my younger days in England. So I always remember him from that. And he gets a great, that movie, a lot of these times in these films, you just see him as like a, he, he was the innkeeper in a lot of movies. But here he really gets an interesting character and gets to play different emotions and even to do a little bit of action. So this was the great thing about Shaw's of this era. They had a huge rotating cast of great character players, and you could bring people in. Like Fan Moi San is a great example, who's still with us. I just worked with him on the movie Attrition in Thailand. Um, can't walk so well uh, these days, but his brain is still crazy sharp, and he has a lot of great stories to tell. I mean, how anybody would 
believe that this uh, kind of withered carrot or whatever it is, is the ginseng. I don't know, but I guess it kind of works in the context of this movie that you're going to kind of, these guys are not quite with it. Basic background of Lolit was that he was a uh, uh, karate guy and he had done like a makawara training. If you see close-ups, if you freeze frame on his knuckles, they're very solidly constructed from punching the makawara, which is a Japanese karate practice. And he mentioned to me one time that Bruce Lee always used to say, hey, you know what, we should go jogging together in Kowloon Tong. And uh, Lolit was like, hey, man, I'm working at Shaw Brothers. I have to work around the clock. Uh, when I finish work, I don't want to go jogging. So we never got to see the King Boxer and the Big Boss jogging side by side. That's the old style chamber pot there. And uh, by the way, you saw some writing on the wall there's some writing on the in, uh, black on red next to him. It says, Fort Hat Jung Lam, wealthy customers always welcome. Quite right, too. So uh, he's like kind of uh, taking a pee while this guy's taking care of business in the background. This Again, all these interior sets, all the parts that make up a, uh, a inn used again and again. Kind of cool look with the bandana there. Brave lighting here. No playback to check if you're getting enough. The, the smoke got the dance. And uh, you're, in these days, I mean, there was definitely a uh, worry if it was not lit. There was not much you could do later in post like you can today. <clears throat> and also you had the situation where you had no playback, so you didn't know it was lit until you saw the dailies. These rice paper windows save so much time, like anybody can sneak in and look at anybody else. So really she's <clears throat> like a lady ninja here, or a lady uh, chingja. And um, I think it showed the good relationship between the director and the DP that they can come in and say, okay, we're shooting at night, so you can't have it too illuminated, but the audience in the theater needs to see clearly what's going on. So here you have this close range combat illuminated by studio lightning, which works really well. Obviously a double for uh, for the girl for most of the tight moves of this. This is a great thing about ninja movies is anybody as IFD proved I think with their ninja films in the 80s was anybody can be a ninja. You can have you know, like Bruce Barron or somebody running around and they put on the ninja outfit and it's a stunt double. But she's doing some of the work here as well. It's kind of cool. A little bit undercranking. Uh, this is Jung Chen Yan's work. Uh, undercranking with the action so that you can you know get more vim for your buck. Running out into the back lot, a double jumps down for, and then you get like kind of, um, this is again on the back lot, the battle continues. Nice jumping front kick there from uh, Lolly. He was still very agile, even though the only training he did at this point was the training when he actually made a movie. That was the only time he would actually kick and punch. Hard to believe, but that's how the guys were. Bruce Lee was probably the only guy that trained a lot the rest of the time, uh, and not just when he, <laughs> not just when he had a film to make. So the skullduggery happening when thieves fall out. Uh, this is, uh, I think, um, kind of, again, very much in the vein of King Hu, the idea that you have all these guys in the same Hak Chan, double jumping down there for Wang Han Chen. And, uh, but this is very much uh, in the keeping of, everybody was so blown away by Come Drink With Me. And uh, Free Sectional Staff, one of my favorite weapons, getting a, a play there. This action by Tongai. And it's great, you think about the character, like Sima Jun, Lawleet's character, set them up, and you have this great uh, kind of mass brawl inside the inn. As I say, it's very Come Drink With Me, uh, Dai Joy Hap. 
Uh, it's um, I, I always think that uh, you kind of like um, you you kind of use the set, use these settings to kind of like put the characters in a scenario. It's almost like a, the frame of a comic book. And so when you see the the inn, you know what's going to happen. And this is exactly the same as it was before. The setup of shots, except now you have a human target with these claws. Boom. Dead meat. So that's Wang Han Chen, the wonderful Taiwanese character actor out of the movie. But if you go back and compare earlier, that was set up when they were all at the mansion, the way her fingers had blades popping out. But except this time now we actually see it used on a human. Opening up, boom, coming out onto the back lot and uh, really seeing the beautiful dawn shot there over the Shaw Brothers back lot. It makes you realize how studio, as I say before, you know, some of the later Shaw Brothers pictures in the late era are very studio bound, particularly those of Chang Che. And here we actually get to see lots of different parts of the, of the studio set and also different parts of Hong Kong locations. Nancy Yen coming in as Tan Lee, coming in on Main Street. And we're paying off now something that was set up earlier with uh, Go Hong's character when he stole the uh, snuff bottle. It's a bit of a reach because, I mean, uh, is, is the snuff bottle that distinctive? But you get like this kind of encounter. You just set this up and set her up as to a, uh, in, in terms of her martial arts skills. She's on the road of vengeance, sees the snuff bottle, and then it's like, this must be the guy that killed my father. It's a good thing he's not just a guy that happened to have bought a snuff bottle at the same store that her dad went to, because then I guess he would have died unnecessarily. Plus, he's got that evil look. You can normally tell in these movies if a dude has a beard or a mustache, they're up to no good. So this beard kind of is a bit of a, bit of a giveaway on Go Hong. Boom. And then uh, Nancy Yen, again, somebody who'd done basic martial art training in Taiwan and done a few swordplay films, but not like a martial artist per se. But the same thing could be said, I think, of Zhang Ziyi and Michelle Yeoh, who were like the definitive female stars of this era. Tan Lee's character, Tan, the character Tan Lee using the Wu Deep Dou, uh, butterfly swords, so cool because they have the broad blades like a butterfly's wings, Wu Deep butterfly, so these are Wu Deep Dou, used in Wing Chun, where they call the Bat Jam Dou, and also in my own Hong Kun. Nancy Yen doubled for the leaps and the flips. Obligingly, he dies telling her Sima Jun has already left. That's the kind of villain you want to work with. You know, he kind of gives you the information even though he's dying. Now, the former brothers in arms meeting on horseback in Saikung among the greenery, the gorgeous greenery of Hong Kong of its era. Of, uh, of the, of the, this is now just coming after the, the mid-70s, let's say the mid-70s of Hong Kong. That pole must be a pain to carry around. Tony Liu's character is Erlong, and uh, I, I can think there must be lots of NG shots of him tripping up the horse or whatever. I, uh, I always think um, I admire the imagination of the props department and the weapons weapons creators on these films because after you've done like a hundred kung fu movies it must be hard to come up with anything new so he's going to come in with the pole which is his basic weapon which you've seen a bunch of times before but then later the slinkies are going to do their thing by the way slinky for those of you who don't know was a weapon was, was a weapon it was a toy that is like a like a bunch of uh it's like like what he, what is on the uh, the four, the the uh, biceps of uh, Tony Liu's character, and you would like, it would walk down the stairs. Kind of hard to describe. Go on YouTube and look up Slinky. But now he flips it out. It's less Slinky-like. And now is these linked circles, like something from a magic act. So Lawley uh, doubled for the flips by Yunhua, who had previously doubled uh, Bruce Lee 
So, um, as again, this era, everybody's basically had worked with Bruce Lee, is now looking for another gig, including Tony Liu and including Yunhua. And you get, um, a lot of the time here, this reverse action on the flip. He basically flipped forward and then you reverse the film, so he flips backwards. Um, and it works really, really well. As again, a lot of these old school tricks work fantastically well, um, uh, even when you use them today. And you realize these guys, in terms of martial arts action, they had it down at an early stage. A little bit of hand-to-hand -hand combat here. Doubles for all the flips and whatever. And then we're going to have a trampoline shot of a stuntman to bring Tan Lee into the fray. Again, King Hu was the guy that really popularized, well, I mean, King Hu and his action directors popularized the use of mini trampolines to bring people in and out of action. See the team colors, the matching blue, and white, which we always think of for innocents and brides, perhaps, but it's the color of death for Chinese culture. So uh, that's kind of Sima Jun. Those were actually backflips as backflips, and then coming away from Saigon and coming down onto the rugged beauty of the Hong Kong coastline, as we're at, uh, this is actually Jin Island near Saigon. We actually see it again later in the film, but shot from a different angle, so it doesn't look like the same place. The effect, actually, when he's using the, uh, when he uses the um, flying missile, the, the dragon missile, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, Japanese, the Japanese monster movies, because you're in the studio and you've actually got uh, sparks flying from like a, uh, that's a reverse action to get him there, picks it up. And as I say here, when you go into the studio shot, this is location, that's the studio shot. It does look like Godzilla's about to come climbing over that mountain. Same kind of thing, boom. And then reverse action a lot of the time that he throws it and then you reverse the film and it brings the boomerang back into his hands. So this, again, great use of the location of the Saikung, the rocky Saikung coastline. I, You know, to me, it's like, uh, when they say, oh, this girl's in to take her back to that inn where all the bad guys were. To me, this is the last place she'd be, be safe. But you can see the, uh, the production manager going, well, you know, we've got access to that set. We might as well reuse it. So that's where they, uh, they go back to for these guys. And notice, you know, you're always uh, very flattering when you have girls in the shot, particularly if they're a little older, like uh, Terry Lowers here, that you actually have these filters on the camera so that you can kind of you get a little bit of a glow to make the girls look good. This was a big thing that Run Run Shaw had insisted on. He believed that uh, both men and, and women go to movies to see beautiful women. And so the actors were very important. And uh... Here we are, countryside here is at uh, Fan Ling, out in the wilds of, uh, of Hong Kong. And it's, uh, this actually feels like a bit too easy, given what a badass Sima Jun is meant to be. Uh, and so pulled off, boom, and stuntman coming off the horse. Everybody was skilled at riding a horse, but obviously you'd have, you know, guys who were good at horse gag to fall off and what have you. A lot of pickup shots when you actually see them close range, but not done on location. They might be done in the studio uh, to save time. Boom, and then he gets up, and now we're going to have. Uh, Choice of Kung is on a fake horse with a fake arm. It's whipped off with a wire. He reacts to it. And then this is very smart. When you see, the, if you look at closely on the hand on the ground, it's a real hand poking up with the false severed forearm so the fingers can move. And then he's hit in the neck by the rubber prop, and we cut just now to the dummy losing its head. And then it's actually Choi's body, so the fingers can move, you see, and you just have his head hidden by the rock. 
So no post-production effects at all, everything done in camera, and it still works well. Stock shot of the storm gathering and the rain machine here on the back lot, and we're at the Gunyam Temple, Guanyin Temple, the temple of the goddess of mercy. Ha ha, and you see these bad guys. Gunyam is what you're going to need, Guanyin. And then this is back out on a completely different, the, the temple's actually on the back lot, and that wide shot there is in Fanling. Of the horsemen thundering along but you cut them together the magic of film nobody would know so uh, you have to wonder how they know Sima Jun has the ginseng but anyway that uh, on the left that massive brazier there for burning incense that's been in many of the Lao Garlung's Kung Fu movies and this temple set of course used many times beyond that wall is which has the character Fat Buddhist in black uh, you see Clearwater Bay Ching So Wan and uh, you can always get a nice pop of red if you go back and look at the horse blanket. This, uh, I've actually been on the Shaw Brothers back lot when it's really raining. They were shooting a video game, Supreme Warrior, back in the day. It was very interesting to be around. So there you see through, this is all actually at this, on, a, on a stage. This, that, those reverse shots there are actually uh, painted flat. They're on the stage here for this section interior. It's a good Boy Scout to get a fire going as fast as that. Kong, uh, Gong Yang using the three-sectional staff, Sam Ji Kwan. And uh, it, at this point, um, it feels like he destroys, uh, we're going to destroy the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is the element that you need to uh, to drive the plot along. You got the view there of the Clearwater Bay. Actually, I just said it's not as a painted flat. It actually is not. It looked that way, I think, because of the flat lighting. But actually, it's the view of, of course, Clearwater Bay and then the rain from the rain machine which you have because uh, you're at the studio, which means that you can bring in rain machines and do whatever you need to do. So the trick here is that Sima Jun is going to seem to destroy the MacGuffin, which is when I actually saw the movie, I was like, okay, he's made this kind of uh, play that's kind of foxed everybody, and they've burnt, you now he's burnt the thing they're all going for. And later, of course, there's another twist that comes up. But I, uh, it was like, Smart writing by there's there's a few I think say Deus Ex Machina moments moments that you know you would say wait a minute coincidence in these films but they're formula movies so you can't really get away from that overall I admire uh, Ai Han as a writer myself because he kept coming up with ideas. Look at this nice beautiful wide shot here with the rain again. Um, a lot of this stuff, you could do it all in the close-ups and the tights and still get away with it, but there's an effort made to actually make it work uh, as a spectacle, which is really cool. So, um, and when you actually have the, uh, this, the, when you actually go into these tight shots with the girls, it's really kind of like a nice juxtaposition from the fact that you've been outside in the rain and you've got the, the backdrops. Then when you come into the more intimate encounters, you've got these beautifully lit shots of, uh, of, of the female characters. So uh, I, um, I always think with these films, it's like the, um, the players commit, and the more ridiculous the things are, the better it actually, the more the, more the commitment is required. So the, they really, Shaw Brothers actors really sell some outrageous stuff in the course of their careers. Rainer stopped shooting from the platform there to get the full extent of the temple set. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, after he's been betrayed and he has this, why would you need to go back to the palace and deal with that asshole uh, prince? I would just take off if I was him. 
but anyway, this is the, I guess, the uh, unwritten lore of the Badlands. He has to do, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. So um, the guy's coming in, that's Fat in the background for a Buddhist. Um, again, you know, if you go back and look at any number of Shaw Brothers pictures, you see this set redressed a bunch of times. Um, it's actually the one, the temple set where Chang Fei Pei runs out of for one sequence in uh, the original, I say the original, the only, Come Drink With Me. But that was the original swordplay film that really redefined the genre. So uh, if you, it's a bit like coming home when you watch a Shaw Brothers movie because you recognize the locations, you recognize the uh, sets, and there's kind of a feeling, of, a comfort feeling, I guess, that you're watching characters and locations that are really familiar to you. And Lawley, as I say, you know, had really broken through as a star, an action heroic lead in King Boxer, but that really was never capitalized on in the views of um, Shaw Brothers. He was always the bad guy, I guess, because he had these swarthy, tough looks. But um, I think best known other than as uh, in King Boxer, he's best known for playing Bai Mei, the white eyebrow priest. Now here we are, this location is uh, Ho Sheng Hung in Sheng Shui, and it's famous as the location for the opening of Enter the Dragon when Bruce Lee fights with Sammo Hong, uh, with Roy Chow's abbot watching. The girl skipping along here is Chan Mei Hua, Shaw Brothers Ingenue, and uh, made her debut in Cho Yun's Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, and the father, Lei Saokei, former writer, screenwriter, and production manager, and by this time, a, purely a character actor, at Shaw Brothers. It was a great fallback, you know, if you got fed up with doing a, you know, writing and producing and assistant directing, you could become a character actor at Shaw's, and that's what he was doing at this era. So this, if you go back and look at Enter the Dragon um, and see the opening, and then you go back to look at some of these movies, you can see the same location. It's now, unfortunately, completely overgrown, which is a shame, because it would be a nice place to visit and shoot at if you were doing reminiscences of Bruce Lee, as I often have done. Nice shot there of the fish. And then in, here comes Nancy Yen, attacking with double knives, Yim Wing Chun style. Yim Wing Chun being the founder of the Wing Chun style, done by Bruce, practiced by Bruce Lee, and Yip Man, of course, his teacher. And some of this is Nancy Yen doing her own action, as choreographed by Tong Gai and Yun Chun Yan. And I think uh, it works really well. She sells it. Most people of this era had to do a basic amount of action. Doubles jumping on the horses to ride away. Um, so if you come to Hong Kong, please don't try to find this location because it's completely inaccessible at least for the time being very appreciative father and daughter and that pays off later in the piece as well uh, kind of like uh, another bit of Ai Hong uh, Ni Kuang's foreshadowing to kind of say okay you met this as it, the kind of the coincidence is they actually rescue the she rescues the people who can help later and here we are on the <clears throat> Shaw Brothers Main Street set see that distinctive red blanket in the background that tells us, if those of us in the audience who've been watching, uh, we know that Sima Jun is somewhere nearby because that's the red blanket on his horse. It's kind of obvious when you think that he's up there and they're down in the street, but um, I suppose it works in the cutting, but it feels like he should look down and see them right away because he's so nearby. Um, but I guess by cutting it this way, you get away with it. Um, so Lawley, he uh, defined acting or screen acting is having the necessary charisma 
to drive the story. He wasn't somebody who was much into motivation and the method. He was like kind of, you've got to have the energy, the male energy on screen to drive the story along. His favorite Hollywood actors were Marlon Brando and Paul Newman. Me too, and them and Steve McQueen maybe, of that, that era. He liked the macho guys, which you can tell because that's kind of who he was as a person, I guess. And uh, La Wing uh, was a Hong Kong native, son of actress Lee Wen, and primarily a karate guy uh, before becoming an action actor. Pr primarily trained in karate before he was doing martial art movies. He was, by the way, birds in the cages in the background, which was something very popular at that time. And up until recently, we had, of course, big problems with bird flu, which meant that it was less common practice, or uh, banned, in fact, to bring for the old men to bring the birds in their cages into restaurants, but they did still have them in the park. And to this day, you can see them tending these little birds. And there's a street in uh, in Mongkok, in Wongkok, where you can actually buy little birds in cages. And it's uh, an old tradition. And particularly retired Chinese men, I think, get great pleasure from their birds. So this actually plays like a scene from another movie. And you do wonder if they'd actually cast Terry Lau in this role. Um, and she sells it really well, but they have a gratuitous nude shot coming up and I almost feel like did they actually hire her to be in the movie because they wanted to uh, to have that particular shot I don't know back to Tony Liu with his slinkies I mean I'm just obsessed with slinkies after I see that on his arms for these shots um, and I suppose if you actually analyze the story he is the hero but when I came away from uh, Dragon Missile, I definitely think about uh, Lawley's performance, Lawlier, and he really is this kind of almost like a spaghetti western anti-hero, um, cold-blooded, amoral, but somebody that we um, we come away with more of an impression of than we do necessarily the heroes. The heroes here are a bit vanilla, but I think it's true of a lot of action films. I think actually the bad guy roles tend to be more interesting and more challenging, and certainly he makes. Lolit makes for a great bad guy in this good bad guy. So there you have the gratuitous shot, post-coitus shot of uh, Terry Lau after this kind of really, you know, quite well they had to have that shoehorned in. The innkeeper is Wang Ching Ho. Always great to cut to him when you need someone to look worried. So he always, he always has this kind of look of perpetual concern. So if you're doing a scene in these movies and you want to cut away to somebody looking like disconcerted Wong Ching Ho was your guy so um, you get this kind of uh, there's a, probably a two beats of humor in this movie it played pretty, pretty straight but you get like these uh, a couple of beats anyway so she's obviously looking for the ginseng and the only way she figured that she could actually you know um, I don't know where she thinks the ginseng's hidden by the way but the only way that she could actually get access to it is by using her womanly wiles to win over Sima Jun. I mean, God knows where she thinks she he has the ginseng hidden, but uh, she certainly does a good search of the room. Boom. If anybody else ever got their hands on the dragon missile, I think then the movie's kind of over. So boom, double for her for the jump down. And uh, it's like uh, a them meeting up, deciding, you know, that this is... A, the, by the way, on the right of the frame just then is Lam Yun, if you go back and look on the street. Loli here does his own jump down. And now we have the show then on Main Street, which is kind of cool. I mean, this is the Shaw Brothers Main Street that we saw in so many movies of this era. And if you, as I said, the back, that wall I remember from Marshall Club, which I saw the other day. They had a screening of it at uh, the Shaw Theatre at uh, the, I think it's the City U in Kowloon Tong. But that wall is very familiar to me. Um, 
And at any given time, they'd have a bunch of movies shooting at the studio uh, and people going back and forward. Incredibly prolific. And here we are at this amazing rocky cliff location at Jin Island in Saigong. The best known sea cave you see there is uh, called Kamshungam, not commonly known as Goldfish Wagging Tail. Great setting for a fight. And um, they shot two scenes. You saw one earlier and this one here, shooting different angles of uh, the island, of Jin, Jin Island. And this is still there today. And there's some amazing footage on YouTube of people doing uh, drone shots of it. But a great place to shoot. And basically, if you were from coming from Shaw Brothers Studios and you're going to shoot in Saigong, you just follow the coastline around. By the way, the shot there with the rings coming out was studio pickup with the stone, fake stone in the background. Anything that complicated you do back in the studio, but you, you're running around here, which is tricky, by the way, with all the slippery uh, stones and whatever. Um, but it adds immeasurably. Yinwar doing the flip, and there he is. Look at that framing. It's fantastic. Um, and pretty much everything on location, but you just follow the land round from there, and then this is the famous sea cave. And you follow the land round, then you get to Saigong, and you get to the places that you can film, and it's quite easy to go and shoot with your crew, and then you come back to the studio for whatever else you need to do. But they really make fantastic use of, uh, of this. This is kind of a clumsy getaway. I kept waiting for a boat. This rural location's at Fanling, as he comes in to steal the horses. There's two different locations cut together, but it works, cinematically, I mean. And those guys are sleeping, and one of them wakes up, hey man, where's my horse gone? Um, and that's, this is Fan Ling, and he's gonna ride back to the palace. And here's back, finally we, we remember, wait a minute, this is what they were all kind of like racing off around. They wanted to find this medicine to come and help this horrible prince. Um, and uh, this kind of like, he, he, ever there was a guy who deserved death. Riding through the gate at the Shore, that's the Beijing Gate at Shore Brothers. And then the same uh, location that we saw earlier, but a reverse of that as he comes racing in. As I say, he's kind of he's very the anti-hero, Sima Jun. But we, we kind of root camera moving in again, dollying behind the wall kind of stuff you only saw at Shores. I mean, if you remember when, um, just a couple of years after this, when the Jackie Chan broke out with the next big trend with uh, Snake and Eagle Shadow saying Du Sao and Drunken Master, Joy Kun. It was basically everything shot in the New Territories on location. There was no studio. Um, and those films are fantastic, by the way, but they didn't have any of the um, kind of the uh, resources that Shaw's have. So here we have um, these doomed, and it's actually... Uh, I think uh, you appreciate the creativity of Ai Hong, but he would not deliver a script in the conventional sense. It would be basically almost like the Commedia dell'arte. He would have a series of action beats and dialogue, and that would be fleshed out by the director and the other people involved with the film. But he would come in and say, this is kind of like the Marvel method, I guess, which Stan Lee used to do, was he would kind of come in with like an outline that the artist would make a comic book out of. That was kind of how they worked in these days, that Ihong would come in with an outline, which the director and the team would work from. And it worked pretty well, but the plot turns and plot beats he had to uh, kind of come up with. This is really a um, chance to show uh, Lolly in action. Now, by this point of the movie, we've seen him be really horrible, like he killed that old lady. So, really, we should hate him and want him dead, but we don't. We actually admire him. Look at this one one take, these long takes of the, by now, hugely experienced uh, Lolly 
who was described to me by Quentin Tarantino as the greatest actor in the history of Hong Kong cinema. Um, and Quentin, when he explains to you why he believes something, look at this long shot, it's fantastic. Uh, props to the stuntmen as well to be in the right place at the right time, but also to uh, Lolit for actually being able to shoot all of this in a single take, put together by Tong Gai, the action director. One of the action directors on the film. But anyway, when, when Quentin Tarantino explains to you why somebody's the greatest actor of all time, you kind of come away believing him. Um, and I actually ran into Lolly shortly after that, uh, when he was actually just, as I didn't realize at the time, a few months away from dying of cancer and got to tell him of Quentin's appreciation. So I'm really glad I got to do that. Again, another fantastic set on the back lot. This almost looks like they're shooting at, in Beijing or somewhere, but this is all constructed at Shaw Brothers' uh, back lot. And actually bits of it are still standing to this day. I mean, it's much decayed, but it's still standing as far as I know. I should sneak in sometime, ninja style. Um, but this, uh, they, they actually now, Beijing Film Studios looks like this, but the archetype was the Shaw Brothers Studios in, in Hong Kong, in Clearwater Bay. Massive studio space. It's incredible the vision that Run Run Shaw had, knowing that he would be able to make the films that justified that degree of expense and that degree. So nice climbing there's reverse he actually climbed down and then they reversed the film so he climbs up the bamboo and uh, you kind of like um, cutting back and forward here again between the back lot and the studio shots interiors when you see the uh, the flying boomerang for the dragon missile and uh, you kind of like have the trying again to use his weapon his weapon shattered so no more slinky and then bam this is the point when these guys should really be doomed. But they saw, if they did, if they were, that would kind of be the end of the movie because then they'd be dead and Sima Jun would ride away. I always wonder, like looking at the timing here, why these guys, the guards, don't come. The reverse action there for him uh, coming off the cliff. A stuntman actually jumped down and they reversed the film, so he jumps back up. Actually, there might have been Lolly, but anyway, whoever jumped down jumped back up again. And the three survivors of the Sinister Six, and uh, they look like a bit the worse for wear. And there's the sneaky courtier trying to uh, cause more problems. Uh, and obviously, I mean, this is probably pretty obvious to everybody, but all the scenes on this set were shot at the same time. So they would shoot the six of them before they went on the mission, and then they would, on the same day, have these guys look messed up and shoot this scene, which is meant to be after the mission has failed and they've come back. Um, and it's just, that's the way you shoot a movie. And it's tricky for the actors because they kind of have to make that shift to... How are you feeling at this stage of the story to how are you going to feel at that later stage of the story? But hey, that's why they were paid the big bucks. Though actually the contract players at Shorts were not paid big bucks. I remember Lolly telling me when he did King Boxer, even though it was a big hit as Five Fingers of Death, he never really saw any extra money from that. Just got his wages. So the uh, on the back lot, you see the wanted posters. If I'm, uh, of course... At this point, he really needs to get out of that white outfit, which indeed he does, and put on a disguise, which he does. But when they're putting up these posters saying, see my John wanted, dead or alive, preferably dead. Uh, and so uh, he needs to kind of like blend in and leave town. Supposedly we're in Beijing, by the way. Uh, that, that, sometimes when you see the gateway leading out of Shaw Brothers, like the one there, it actually leads out to the countryside beyond the Shaw Brothers studio. It's kind of a reach, by the way, that... Um, they later decide, again, nice looking, nice look here at the Shaw's 
backlot street set that we see in so many movies uh, of this era. As I say, it's kind of a reach uh, from the script from uh, Ni Huang, Ai Hong's script, that they decide to check out Double Brook Village, the same place the fishermen came from that we saw earlier. But I think when you make a movie, when you watch a movie like this, maybe when you make a movie like this, you have certain conventions that you follow, and audiences are very gracious about it, it seems. So another beautifully appointed set on location near Clearwater Bay. We have uh, Chair Kwasan, uh, Razor Hill, visible behind it. Nice dolly move there with the camera. And the reverse is looking out towards Clearwater Bay. Uh, and as you look at these two fishermen here, the guy on the right is Yun Kui, Corey Yun, opera school classmate of Jackie Chan, later an action director and director in his own right. And uh, the other fellow on the left, Yun Hua, former Bruce Lee stuntman, and star of Kung Fu Hustle, and was also the double for uh, Lolly for the flips. Both of them opera trained, and they're just doing stunts on the movie, and they get a little cameo there. And then we are back on. This is how Hong Kong, by the way, before the British came and took over, it was like this, a barren rock with fishermen. Um, it's actually probably a good thing sometimes with these, uh, you don't zoom in too much on the background because there's some very modern buildings, even at this stage of the 70s there were modern buildings in the background so sometimes you see these wide shots of Clearwater Bay and you can see structures in the distance they would be quite modern houses of the people living there at the time uh, Tony Liu good looking dude La Wing um, he was a big star but you almost think he should have become an even bigger star than he did uh, but I guess unlucky and he didn't have the breakthrough movie this again at Sai Kung and shot a, a different section of the coastline but all in the Sai Kung area and so they shot all those sequences at the same time uh, on with the location work. As I mentioned, you just follow the coast up from Clearwater Bay Studios and you get to Sai Kung, which is today um, kind of a cool place to live. Uh, I was just there about four or five weeks ago uh, on like a camping trip with the kids. I'm not a big camping fan, but we had a good time that day and went to Sai Kung for lunch the following day. It was fun. So uh, now they've got this great idea about using nets to counter the dragon missiles. And there's Ex Machina. Here's somebody with a net who owes them a favor. So now back on the back lot, and we see Lolly in disguise, which is kind of cool. I mean, you have to wonder why he hadn't managed to climb a wall and actually left the city. But uh, he's still stuck here, and the wanted posters everywhere. And again, only Shaw Brothers at this time could build this, have this many available sets and as many available extras to fill the sets. Here's Shum Lo and playing Mr. Shum in the movie. And you wonder why he's helping him. Shum Lo, another great character actor under contract to Shaw's at this time, who you see in so many movies. And we never really find out why there's this bond between them, but uh, it's, uh, this is obviously somebody where Sima Jun, uh, he, Owes him, he, he owes Sima Jan a favor, so he's going to hide him away up here. Again, you can move the camera handheld to take us up to the next level and into uh, the wine. The wines, it's not the wine cellar, is it? The wine attic, the interior wine storage room. Um, and if you count the number of sets and the number of locations in this movie, it makes you realize the resources available to Shores that were not available to anybody else. Um, and for some, what I think made perhaps the Jackie Chan movies so powerful was the fact they were so basic. And the same thing with 
Bruce Lee with Big Boss is that if you tried, like some of the Taiwanese movies did, you tried to out Shaw Shaw, which is what Lawway did with the early Jackie Chan films, you could not because the Shaw Brothers style was so dominant. What you could do was take it back to basics, which is what Bruce Lee did with Big Boss and what Jackie did with Snake and the Eagle Shadow. And I think that um, basically everything that follows success has to be a reaction to that success or the opposite of that success to succeed in its own right. So Bruce Lee is kind of an opposite and reaction to the swordplay films. And Jackie Chan was a reaction and opposite to the very serious martial arts heroes that had followed Bruce Lee. And uh, so it's kind of a reach that uh, Shumlo is putting him out on a boat. On the left here is uh, Lam Fong. On the right now, Lam Fong, supporting player in the Shaw Brothers movies of this era. So uh, it's kind of, now we're preparing these nets and uh, nice shot up through the nets uh, on location. And I, um, you, you have to wonder, they're building, they're preparing the nets. How do they know Sima Jun is going to come there so they can use the nets? Maybe they're going to wander the land carrying fishing nets, see if they can catch him. But it's a fantastic, the, the thing you can say about Shaw's is if they built a set, they knew how to get value out of it. So this was a beautifully constructed set, and you could shoot in any direction, as you can see, and they make the most of it. So uh, Lam Fung is going to be the is the sneaky guy who's going to sell out Sima Jun. But when you see the money being offered, you understand why. Again, you know, this is just kind of like really connecting tissue of the film. But these shots are really beautifully constructed, and uh, as I say, Ho Menghua underestimated, underrated as a filmmaker at Shaw's. And uh, here's where he figures out, this is the guy from the Wanted posters. And uh, just gets that quick beat as he's heading away. This is actually shooting night for night. They used to do, in the early days of Shaw's, like the same thing at Hammer Films, when you shot night, you'd put a filter across the lens to shoot, um, to make it look like night, even though you shot during the day. But these are actually shooting night for night, which gives you these wonderful shadows and these effects. And uh, he goes to report to the survivors of the Sinister Six and the Wicked Courtier. Um, and uh, he actually doesn't get his comeuppance. Normally in these movies, when somebody decides to sell out a major character, they get killed afterwards. But this guy, for whatever reason, doesn't. Look at him sweating up a storm. You see, he's like one of the red shirt guys in Star Trek. He knows he's probably doomed. Maybe he's killed later, but we don't, think him, we don't see him killed on camera. Normally, people in these films, there's this within the world of the Zhang Hu, the Gong Wu, there's kind of a, a natural justice. So if you sell somebody out, then you get you know, chopped later in the piece. But the um, plotting of the villains here, the back and forward of it, the great thing about Shaw's was that you had all these fantastic support players. Look at this dust on Main Street. And uh, this was actually... That was meant to be moonlit, but to me it looked a little bright, even though it was shot night for night. Uh, but again, quite atmospheric, and uh, the dust rising, it's very much... These are not westerns, they're easterns, but they have a lot of the same tropes. Um, and if you look at this location, the number of angles they found to shoot just for the stairs heading up to the, the wine attic. Um, and... Of course, when you watch enough Shaw Brothers pictures, you're going to see um, the same. They, in the course of the movie, so many places you recognize from other films, which I guess does take you a little bit 
out of the the film that you're watching in that given like this bridge which is in come drink with me one arm swordsman is where Wong Yu fights at the end of one arm swordsman and uh, any other number of Shaw brothers movies but the bridge is seen so uh, this is the guy's been he doesn't know he's been sold out it's actually if you look at the sky there it's just before dawn uh, Dong Young is playing the boatman uh, he's in disguise it's kind of obvious and you would think that Sima Jun would be more on his guard so this guy lives to collect the reward which is a rare thing stock shot of a uh, distinctive rock formation and then we're on the open sea well yeah open sea of Clearwater Bay we can call it the open sea it's not a lake it actually is the sea and coming ashore right to the fishing village where our heroes happen to be waiting but um, yeah, it's a kung fu movie, so you're going to get those kind of things happening. Uh, and back in those days, uh, boats were still a very effective way to carry uh, people around the coastline. If you look here, we're meant to be somewhere stuck in the Badlands, but if you look carefully just now, there was a shot where you saw the pagoda from the Shaw Brothers studio in the background. And I think it was a... I understand... You can understand why when they were shooting... This is actually uh, stuff at Sai Kung with the rocks. But uh, when you actually get to the village... Uh, you're quite close to um, to Shaw Brothers Studio. So on a few shots, you do see kind of the build-up of like a city in the background. You see the pagoda there in the background. I, my feeling is we're meant to be out in the wilds, so the pagoda shouldn't be there. But anyway, there's no way to take it out, so that's what you have. So the open sea of Clearwater Bay behind. And uh, some of these little, as you look, if you watch carefully, the little modern houses of Clearwater Bay. Um, but this is like uh, kind of difficult shooting exteriors like this nice wide shot sometimes you can use the double but tough to shoot because it's hot in Hong Kong in the summertime and you're doing repeated takes in period costume it's very tricky so down the sword they're going there was was uh, pulled out from the wall and then they reversed the film daggers being used again so this is really Sima Jun as a badass not using the flying uh, the, the dragon missile at this point, you see the pagoda very clearly in the background there at this moment. And now you see that he had his way with her and now he's killing her off. And now, boom, little white houses in the background there. As the, uh, as the, we cut back, as you see behind him, the glorious expanse of Clearwater Bay and those little white houses. Nice use of lens flare, which I always love to see in movies. You see it less these days because it's all digital. But then, boom, these are nice. I mean, the way this works today, this will all be CGI, but I don't know that it would look any better than what we're seeing here. Uh, the only difference, the, my only beef, a double there for Fanboy San flipping over the boat. The only thing that I would say is different is that the lighting is different uh, between what you see on the set and what you see on the, on the location. But anyway, death to Fanboy San and Kong Young. Good work, you guys. Now, this beat, it kind of could be, you know, live and let live. But another thing you had to be aware of, you couldn't really do an anti heroic uh, spaghetti western style story in. Uh, Hong Kong at this time because Taiwan and Singapore were such major markets for Hong Kong movies and the governments there, the censors would not allow any film where you killed people or you broke the law and you, at the end you had to be punished or you had to die. So that was always, there was kind of an, uh, an unwritten moral law about what kind of movies that you could tell. This is kind of like this battle paying off like there's a saying in Chinese that children cannot live under the same sky as their parents killer. So this is what you're seeing here because uh, Sima Jun has been complicit in the death of both their parents. Um, so this is kind of like, uh, again, the creativity here where they've got these, uh, the idea that they're going to use 
the netting to somehow um, counteract the weapon. And everything has to be done practically either on this location off Clearwater Bay or it has to be done back in the studio and then you cut it together. And there's really not much enhancement. The big enhancement that they did that worked really well is they would put in sounds. So sometimes you'd hear a and a dung and it kind of works to cover over something that didn't really work on the stage. But otherwise, what you saw was what you got, which was um, dangerous and exciting. But I think it adds to some of the energy of the movie. And nowadays, I think, including me, you do a movie sometimes and you're like, oh, we'll fix it in post. But there was no fix it in post at this time. Whatever you saw is whatever you got. Like just mentioning there, the sound effect actually allows for the spinning weapon to cut Tony Liu. It's actually, you can't show a shot. There's no way to show a shot of a flying weapon actually slicing over, open his outfit and blood coming out. So it was the sound effect that really, really sells it. The cuts are already there and the sound effect makes you think it's just happening. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that the only post-production they had sometimes was... Um, was the sound that's what we, which would add something if you watch the end fight between Lal, Gordon Liu Lao Garfai and Lolit in Cersei Chamber of Shaolin um, there's a sound effect there that's incredible when uh, Lolit's character is killed off with the three sectional pole and I mean it just adds so much to that beat in the movie and again this really works I mean if you saw the same thing today it would be and you saw it actually in uh, Andrew Lau Lao Waikong's guillotines movie and it didn't look it looked far worse i think boom and then to kill lolit they stick in stick them into a fake back pull out reverse push in then cut to him with the prop missiles embedded and the end of another shore brothers classic thank you for watching my name is bay logan and uh again thank you for your support